there was not a real need for that sort of aircraft because it's a huge, uh, you know, double decker aircraft, massive, massive plane, right? So they, you know, the it was very expensive to to run. And when you have an aircraft with four engines, you know, I mean, it's going to cost you a lot more. So, for example, when you're flying from Singapore, Changi, or KLIA uh, to London, just an example, right? Because this was told to me by pilots who fly it. Uh, and I have a, an ex-college uh, mate who, who, who was an A380 pilot, right? And each time when you fly an A380 from either Singapore or Malaysia, you're talking about uh, loading up jet fuel worth about over 200,000 US. Wow. <laughs> Just for that sector, <laughs> just for that sector from from uh, Singapore or KL to London. London, yeah. Right. So, before we begin the podcast, have you gotten your free ebook? It's called the Build a Six Figure Portfolio Guidebook. Now, inside it, we share with you the tips and tricks to bring your stock investing skills to the next level. The best part, it's only 10 pages long and it's totally free. Whether you're on Spotify or YouTube, the link to download is in the description or you can go to www.firl.co slash f-r-e-e or www.firo.co slash free. So hello and good day, everyone. Welcome back to the Fire Podcast. Um, today, we have a very, very special guest, someone that I have been stalking for a very long time online, and I finally had the pleasure of meeting him. Uh, I hope my, my, my co-host, MJ, will not uh, you know, be too bored because it's, it's, in a way, my hobby and my passion. <laughs> Don't don't set up this podcast like that already, John. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I'm very I'm looking forward. You know. Yeah. Yes. Really Especially. Yeah. Great. So uh, today my guest is Mr. Uh, Shuko Yusuf. For those of you who don't know him, uh, he runs a blog by the name of Endow Analytics. I'm dying to ask him why he picked that name. Uh, he's also a contributing uh, a writer to uh, the SNP. Uh, I want to find out about more about his history and I'll, I won't spoil the surprise or I'll let him introduce himself. So without further ado, um, Mr. Shuko, welcome to our show. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. Happy to speak uh, to you this afternoon. Yeah, great. So um, Shuko, I just want to tease out a little bit of your background and uh, I understand you're a Singaporean but residing in Johor. Is that correct? No, I'm actually a Malaysian. Oh, Malaysian, but okay. <laughs> I'm a Malaysian. I'm a Johorian. I was born in JB. I see. Uh, and but I I I moved to Singapore as a student a long time ago. And I see. So I've never actually lived in Malaysia until eight years ago. Oh my goodness! So yeah. all this while, well, Singapore. I grew, I, yeah, I grew up. No, no, I grew up for a bit when I was young. So and then uh, secondary school, I was in. And onwards, and after that, I I never lived in Malaysia until I came back in twenty thirteen. What made you kept come back to Malaysia? Actually? Oh, I'll I'll come back to that actually. <laughs> it, it, it was it was uh, yeah, it was my son, but uh, more of that later. But I I uh, spent my 
youth in Singapore. Okay. Uh, because my parents wanted me to have uh, an English education. I see. Yeah. And, I see. Uh, and for that, I'm very grateful and very thankful to them. Uh, Great. And uh, I mean, that pretty much shaped uh, the person that I am to get that experience and that uh, years spent uh, being in Singapore in mm-hmm. that very tough academic system uh, mm-hmm. where, you know, but it's also a truly meritocratic place to be. Mm-hmm. And so you either swim or you sink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, fortunately, I, I, I enjoyed myself and I wasn't, uh, I was interested in studies, but uh, not, you know, to the extreme. So it was, it was, uh, it was a good experience to, to, to have over there to see through the secondary school and then I went to junior college. Mm-hmm. JC? Yeah, JC. I spent two years there and then the, I had uh, I had a place in NUS Okay. Uh, to study geography. Mm-hmm. Geography? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> of all things? <laughs> yeah. Somehow it was, uh, you know, I wasn't particularly interested in it, uh, but it turns out to be one of better subjects that I had for A levels. So, okay. so they, they said, okay, you and in A I wanted to study history or politics or you know, social sciences, liberal I arts and so but, but they mm. put me in jokes. So I went because I also have a strong interest in, in maps and, and in looking at contours and all that stuff. Um, I see. Yeah, I see. But then uh, you know I also had a place uh, at some universities in UK. Okay. Uh, this was so after A level, I had already applied for some universities in, in the UK and got accepted uh, to a couple of colleges in London. And then, uh, but then I had this place at, in the US. So, uh, and so it, I was, uh, yeah, what I'm trying to say is I didn't have the funds to see me to go to the UK at that point. Mm-hmm. And this is early 90s. 90s? 84, 84. 84, yeah. okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a lot older than you guys. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> MG, were you born back then, uh, 84? No, 10 years. Oh, 10 years okay. later now. 1994, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the 80s were a fabulous time, especially yeah. for music. Um, but anyway, so so I, I, I decided to uh, just accept the, the place at NUS mm-hmm. because, because uh, at the same time, I was also applying for scholarships. I see. And in Malaysia. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the, I decided let's try, yeah, just just accept the course and yeah. it. because I didn't know where, if I was going to make it to go overseas, right? I see. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. And, uh, but I kept trying. And I had those places. Already. Anyway, I started, so I had did my matriculation, I did my uh, lectures for the first month or two. Okay. And then during that time, I think uh, six weeks into the course, I... I I was very fortunate because I had uh, had a uh, scholarship from the Johor State Government. Wow! And where yeah. do you go? <laughs> I went to London. Yeah. Oh, okay. And what 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 do you major in? And I which... majored in in history. And, uh, but again, there was uh, this was my initial uh, thing that I did when I arrived. In um, so for for two weeks, I was uh, in Central London at the College of State. That it's a very good school that okay. specializes in. Uh, uh, Oriental and Asian studies and okay. African studies, right? Okay. And 
and uh, so I, I went there and I got very homesick. Okay. <laughs> and I didn't like London somehow. I've never. It was the first time I left. Uh, I left Singapore or Malaysia, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I've never been anywhere. I've never. It was the first time I took a I took a plane actually. <laughs> and uh, it was a Boeing seven four seven. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, so so I I spent two very miserable weeks in London, and then I decided why well, it wasn't a course. It's, College was a fabulous place because of the history and the lectures, but I just didn't like everyday commuting on the underground. I see on the tube. Yeah, it was, it was crazy, and I didn't like. How about the weather? Actually, the weather was grim. Also, you know, this was I arrived in I think just before mid September, and as if you've probably been to London or, or the UK, you you know it's always wet and gloomy. It's always grey. Yeah, it's always grey. <laughs> yeah. But that didn't bother me as much. But I didn't like the idea of uh, being in London because it's you know, city is very crowded. It's, uh, yeah, so, I, I, so at the end of two weeks, I decided I have to leave this place. And it was difficult because my scholarship was uh, uh, looked after by the Malaysian students. So I see. I see. Part of the Malaysian embassy, right? Mm-hmm. I commissioned there. So I went to see the counselor who's in charge of all the Malaysian students there. I said to him, I said, I have a problem. <laughs> and he said, What are you going to do? You know, I said, We, we you know, you, your degree, everything, everything was on paper, documented. And everything. I said, Look, I'm going to try and find a place outside of London. And if I get, then, you know, I'm, I can write or call the officials in JB and explain to them. Mm-mm-mm. So I, I, I found uh, the university in Brighton. Brighton, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is about 50 minutes by train from London. I went down there. Uh, it was end of, so you know, classes had already started. And so I said, you know, look, this is, I have this problem. And I went to see the, uh, the head of uh, the faculty. Okay. And, and I said, do you have any place? He said, what do you want to do? I said, hmm. anything, anything in, in the, <laughs> in, in, within the arts uh, faculty, right? Okay. And he said, we don't, you know, history is full, geography is full, this and that. And I said, what do you have? And he said, uh, well, we have European studies. Okay. <laughs> So it's okay, I'll take that. <laughs> I, I, I did because I was, you know, I don't know if you've been to Brighton, but Brighton is a beautiful place. It's by the coast. Mm. It's the southern part of Yeah, Brighton, Brighton, right? It's really yeah. nice. Really, it's, uh, really nice. At that time, it's got a fairly good football team as well. Yeah, yeah. Football, football players stay there also, I believe. Some yeah, well, they have, they have a Premier League club now. It's, it's in the Premier yeah. so, um, So, yeah, and then I said, you know, look, uh, I'm being sponsored by a state government, and so I can, if you, you know, let me in, I can write to them and say, yeah, okay, if you get a letter from your, your embassy, your, mm-hmm. uh, the government. So yeah, he, he accepted me, so uh, that's how I, <laughs> I did a degree in European studies, um, which is probably, I don't know, I'm probably one of the few Malaysians, I don't, I haven't met any 
Malaysians who did. Uh, I, I think for me, for my small sampling, I think you're the only one. But that that, yeah. that makes my curiosity even even more. It's like European studies to aviation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's quite a journey I've had. So I did that for years. Uh, I, I did one of the uh, requirements where you would need at least have a basic knowledge of a European language. I see. So I didn't know anything. Um, um, so he said, you know, if you don't, then we have to put you on a, on a really, uh, on a, uh, like a crime course. Okay. <laughs> Express course. On- so, so you have to choose either French, Italian, German, anything. Which one did you choose? I'm very curious now. Italian. Okay. Why Italian? Why not the, the, the French or, or, or German or, you know? I, well, because part of the course requires students in that uh, program uh, to go for exchange courses in the country that the language of your choice. I see. So I, I thought, well, and in the choice was uh, being a student in Bologna, one of the oldest universities in, in Italy. Italy yeah. yeah. So yeah, so, so I did that. And, and I found that Italian is not very difficult if you understand the, the Latin or, you know, unlike German, for in German is very difficult. Yes. Right? They yes. have their own uh, uh, way of, of writing and pronunciation, but it's not. So, I mean, if you understand English, it's not very difficult to understand. Right? Mm. So like, no, no guessing who you were supporting, right? Uh, I was, uh, yeah, yeah. I was, I was delirious when. when <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I didn't, I didn't think it was a good end to it. I, I was, penalties are not a good way. To yeah, penalties are never a good. Yeah. But I can see like you, like having a hard time like supporting because you learn Italian, but at the same time also you were you were studying in the UK. Indeed, yeah, and and I do have a soft spot for. Uh, for England. In I fact, see. I was the only Asian on that course, on that program. I think there were over 40 students. And this is, we're talking about the mid 80s. Yeah. You know, there are very few students. The, the Malaysians that I knew at, uh, at that time in Brighton were mostly engineering or science students. Yeah. Yeah. yeah? yeah. Um, so there wasn't anybody in arts or diplomas. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Shuko, do you mind if you increase your volume just a little bit by probably... How's this? Yeah, sounds better. Sounds okay. better. Yeah, great. So yeah, from from European studies, Bologna University, what was the pivoting moment that made you switch into aviation analysis? And maybe you can share with us. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, well, it, it, you know, aviation, I didn't start until 25 years ago. Oh, oh so, yeah. Uh, in 1996. So before that, I was I was a journalist by training. Ah, yeah. So I, I came back from the UK uh, to Singapore. Okay. Um, went to JB, but then you know I, I went across because all my friends and uh, uh, people I knew were in Singapore, and they said, you know, why don't you find a job there? So I spent about two months um, looking around, and there was a there was an ad at Singapore Press Holdings. Okay, SPH. Yeah, and, and they were looking for uh, 
uh, fresh journalists. Mm. And so I applied. And within they wrote back and with the coffee. And for no, for, for written tests first. Okay. So, yeah, for a written English test for about three hours. And then, uh, and then they said, okay, you do the test and then go back and then we'll let you know if if we think uh, you know you qualified uh, to be a journalist and then to have another interview, right? Okay. So so yeah, then they called me up. Okay. So okay, we have an interview and then we had an interview, panel interview. SPH is a very good organization they have. Okay. Especially in English, especially in many areas uh, of, 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 of for discussion. Yeah. Right. So they said yeah, after that, then they said, yeah, okay, uh, you know, would you like to join us? So said, <laughs> yeah, why not, right? You know, so I, I like to write. Uh, I enjoy uh, telling stories. I enjoy meeting people. Right? Before I uh, came back to Singapore, I was actually uh, interviewed by Reuters in London. Oh, yeah. why, why, why didn't you take that one up? Because at that time, it was very difficult to get a, a working visa. I see. Very, very difficult. Um, so I went to a two-day uh, interview session in, in Fleet Street. Fleet Street is where most of the major UK newspapers are based. Mm. And so I went um, to be interviewed to do this session interviews with people at Point It was fun. Mm -hmm. And then but they said, you know, you have to apply for what you say yourself. Oh my God. Uh, they wouldn't yeah. sponsor you in a way. No. Uh. No, but they said that if you want it, then you know we can recommend you if you wanted to work in Singapore, for example. There's a Reuters bureau in Singapore. Yeah, yeah. So and then I thought, well, you know, we'll see how it goes. And I said it's alright. It was a good experience. So I went back, and then I, I knew I wanted to do something in writing. I see journalism. So that's how I got into SPH. So I started in SPH as as a cadet reporter. Mm. Yeah, a little foot soldier in, 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 in the whole pyramid. It was fun, yeah. yeah. I was 22 when I started. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Shukok, do you mind if you increase your volume just a little bit? Because okay. somehow, it just sometimes we can... About 30% if it's possible. Yeah. Okay. Ah, fantastic. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Good, okay, good, good. So from the foot soldier, were you in a way, I think, uh, correct me if the term is wrong uh, they said you assign a beat right usually when a journey that's true that's true i think uh, you well good you know your stuff <laughs> <laughs> when journalists are usually i mean for for sph in in the late 80s i think what they do to new cadet reporters where they put you as a general reporter mm, mm. meaning they assign you to the various desks in the newsroom so yeah. at one point you would be working in the general desk and then be working with uh, crime people, mm. covering crime and all those fun stuff and, and entertainment. So if you <laughs> like covering about music, concerts and, and celebrities and so on, you know, then yeah. you do that and, and sports. Mm. Uh, so I ended up doing sports after, you know, spending a bit of time around the newsroom um, mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, uh, the editor, sports editor and people in sports, I got on very well with them. I see. And, you know, I also like the idea of uh, not spending a lot of time in the office because when you, you cover, you're a sports reporter, you go out a lot. Correct. Right? And you get a chance to, you know, I love football. So 
to watch football and then write about it. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so that was fun. So that's that's what I ended up doing for the next few years. I see. In, I see. In at SPH, and then I left in in mid in the mid nineties, I think ninety four. Um, because so I before you a, go on, sorry, before yeah. you go on, I just want to know what you were covering in those several years uh, for football. Like, was it local? Football teams <laughs> well, it was, it was it was local and international as well. Um, ah. So I initially, of course, I had to cover all the local stuff, right? And you cover even schools, soccer wow. stuff, yeah. You know, secondary schools, who plays what? You know, it was it was fun because you, you know when you are young, you speak to young people, and and you are doing talent spotting as well, right? Mm. You see, so eventually, you know, some of the uh, boys that I I followed and interviewed they, within four, three, four years, they played for for Singapore. Wow! Yeah, so that's good. And uh, but I also covered uh, Serie A at that time in the mm. early nineties. So they had started a column uh, for Italian football, which had just started being very big in Singapore at that time. And so we had all these tapes and, and uh, matches that were sent to us. And what I did was to review that. They're all in Italian. Then they thought, okay, <laughs> since you understand Italian, so, you, know, <laughs> you might as well write about it, right? So, so I, I, part of the job was writing or watching football matches that had come from from Italy and then writing about it in the newspaper. Wow, what a cool yeah. job in a way. <laughs> it was, yeah. It wasn't just that. I mean, other than that, I, I covered tennis. So I, I've i met quite a few celebrities. I, I had the, had lunch with McEnroe. Okay. In, oh, in, during in, the 90s, right? So McEnroe. Early 90s, yeah. McEnroe was there. He came with Agassi. Agassi, yeah. Andre Agassi. And, and, and Sampras? A, Sampras wasn't there. So it was just an exhibition match. I see. And then a year later, uh, Gary Lineker came. Ah, ah, here. And and uh, and because I knew the people who arranged for his uh, arrival, and mm-hmm. he came to Singapore before he left for Japan. He was going to be uh, part of the new J League in Japan. Ah, yes, yes, yes. I remember. Yeah, so so he stopped over, and we had again. We went out. We had a drive. We went <laughs> along the Singapore River. We had a Half a day we chatted and all that. So I and then I wrote about him. Yeah, so that was cool. Uh, who else? You know, I yeah. But sports, I mean, it, it gave you the opportunity to travel to Bangkok, Jakarta, Philippines, all over Southeast Asia. I see. Yeah, so that was fun. When you're in your early twenties, it was fun. Yeah. Yeah. What prompted the move to SNP then, in a way, after? Oh, SP- after after SPH, I, I I left to do my masters. Actually. Ah, okay. So, so I spent a year, another year in, in, in England. Okay. Uh, this time I went to Leeds, uh, Leeds University, which is in the north, I think. Okay. Uh, having spent some time in the south of England, which is a very prosperous part of the country. Yeah. And I wanted to see how, you know, there's always, I mean, if you speak to an Englishman or somebody from Britain, he or she will explain to you that there is a, a regional uh, discrepancy or how should we uh, <laughs> politically di- correct yeah, dis- dis- disparity right between <laughs> disparity. the north and the south right? mm. people are more prosperous and more conservative in the south in the north they are mostly labor voting people yeah and more more working yeah, class right well more working class yeah the manchesters and the liverpools yeah yeah, yeah yeah which is which is great because the best football in england yes. by yeah. the north actually so exactly 
so I, I went to Leeds and I know I had a I watched a few games there you know um, and then after a year I came back to Singapore and and that's when uh, I decided I didn't want to just focus on journalism per se I wanted to do business journalism mm. ah. because it, <laughs> it pays more <laughs> <laughs> no hard and fast hard and fast yeah. fact man you know, don't do <laughs> yeah. but yeah. the choice is very limited at that time right you only have not like now you have so many uh, TV networks and you know business uh, publications and all that so at that time there was a new setup in Singapore called Asia Business News ah. Asia Business News is the precursor of what you have today called CNBC Asia mm. Right, which you can get on TV. So they had just started in Singapore, and I was—I had some friends who worked there uh, from the journalism industry. Okay. And I said, "Wow, you know, can you know, can you try to pull me in or something?" Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. he said, "Yeah, come and meet my my boss. He's an American uh, from the Wall Street Journal." Or something. So I went. And uh, it was very, I mean, Americans and British are very different. Americans are very informal. Yeah. Right? There's no such thing. Okay, no, you have to write in and all that. No, let's come for a chat, he says. You know? So I came in and, and we had a talk and he says, what do you want to do? I said, I don't know. I mean, I don't know anything about TV <laughs> uh, broadcasting. So he said, I said I wanted to try it because it sounded very, very glamorous and interesting and, mm. and fast moving and all that. He said, would you like to be a presenter? <laughs> I said, yeah, why not? So, I mean, uh, so they put me in front of TV. I had a few tests and all that. And, and I didn't like that. I was quite nervous, you know. And you have to be quick on your toes when you're in front of a camera and That's live right. and all that stuff. So yeah. I said, no, I, I think I'll be on behind the cameras. And I'll, so I ended up being a TV producer. Mm. Yeah. So I, I got into CNBC. And then, you know, uh, so during that time, I covered the uh, Kobe earthquake i think it was the uh nick leeson affair and oh nick leeson yeah mj mj so that was that was fun yeah, because at that time uh it, it was the biggest business story in the world yeah 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 <laughs> so we we tried to uh stake him out and everywhere and then uh, yeah we followed <laughs> the story it was fun so after that, uh, you know, I got tired of TV because it, it, there's not much writing in TV, right? Mm. It's just editing videos and looking at stuff, voiceover and all that. Uh, so I thought, you know, I want to go back to something that traditional, doing research and writing. And so then I, I asked uh, Reuters if uh, they, they had anything. So after mm. that, I, I went to Reuters as uh, uh, an Asian correspondent for transport. I see. But based yeah. out of Singapore? Based out of Singapore and Tokyo. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Tokyo. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I got the job and, and I didn't realize what, what I was in for. So this was the beginning of my exposure to aviation. I so see. What, what the job entailed was uh, writing about not specifically airlines. Uh, at that time, I was doing shipping, right? but how aircraft and ships, vessels, Okay. Are being financed by companies, mm. right? So I didn't know that at all until I joined, and they said, "Well, what you have to do is basically talk to a lot of bankers, financiers, you know, and ask them how are these 
financing structured for an aircraft for, wow. for a ship, for example, right? So mm-hmm. that's, that's how I got into it. So I spent the first six months just grappling around and <laughs> not, I, you know, there's a lot of jargon, lot of thing, but uh, thankfully I got to know some French bankers in Singapore who took me under their wings and they, we became friends, you know, and I'm still in contact with them today. And that's how I got into aviation. Uh-huh. Initially, it wasn't just aviation, it was aircraft financing. Mm. So aircraft financing is very different from your typical aviation analyst. Aircraft financing means you don't really care about, you know, all whatever goes, you know, the technical parts of aircraft and all that, but you must understand the process by which airlines buy aircraft. This is How, getting interesting. Please yeah. continue. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you have a, a, an asset that's worth, you know, 50 to 100 million easily for yep. aircraft, right? Yep. And how do airlines pay for it? Right? No, very few people understand this. Yes. Um, so there's a lot of, it's very sexy actually, because there's a lot of cross-border tax leases involved, mm. right? incentives and uh, very, very creative accounting. Mm. You know, right, and you can have a, an aircraft that's registered in, say, in the Cayman Islands or in Labuan, you know, because to take advantage of the favorable uh, tax uh, regime. Yeah, yeah. So that's how I got it. So I spent six months. I, eventually, I spent three years, three years plus there, uh, doing nothing but writing about how aircraft are being financed, and then. That's how I got into speaking engagements as well, because part of that job also uh, that they had, they had they had conferences every year. Okay. Uh, conferences where bankers would come and then uh, you know talking about aircraft financing, airline economics and all that stuff. So I got mm. involved with that. So I it deepened my interest and my understanding of the industry as well. So I that's see. when you get a chance to meet all. Here's someone from Boeing. Here's somebody from Airbus. I see. Yeah. And these are the manufacturers. These are the component makers. And then I started to understand, ah, it's not just aircraft and passengers, right? Correct. It's, it's a whole, uh, the, you know, it's a huge ecosystem. Yes, yes. Maybe you can take us through a journey. Let's just say, because there's these terms of aircraft leasing, and then you have companies that doesn't even have a brand name. It's not front-facing to a customer, yeah. but they actually own 75% of the aircraft for a particular airline, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. <laughs> right? So maybe, you can you take us through? Let's, let's, let's walk through. Let's just say SIA. Uh, or maybe you can give me another airline that is a better example when they practice aircraft leasing, someone like Asia. So Asia wants 100 aircraft. They have all the routes set up or whatsoever. Take us through... What are the steps that AAsia needs to, from the word get go, in the sense that I, I have a plan for 100 aircraft for five years. I'm going to the Funbro Air Show. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to announce this big order with Airbus. But what are the things that go on behind the scenes? Securing of financing, securing of the contracts, securing of the leasing and all that kind of thing. Maybe take us through that, that journey. Uh, Okay, very good that you mentioned Singapore Airlines. Singapore Airlines is actually one of the very few airlines in the world uh-huh. uh, that owns their own aircrafts. Mm. So they previously don't do a lot of leasing because they can well afford to buy those aircraft. Okay. And they're very cash rich. Okay. And then they manage their portfolio very well. So they had, until today, I think they, they 
I think because of the crisis now, I think things are slightly changing. But previously, they were one of the very few airlines that actually own aircraft. Wow. So when you own aircraft, the advantage is you control the cost. You you have a more leverage when you're buying the aircraft. Right? Okay. You can you can squeeze the manufacturer, mm. especially with a name like SIA. So mm. they they typically they they're the benchmark in the industry. I so see. they they get the best prices whenever they buy aircraft. Wow. You know, it, it is not an exaggeration to say that this is one of the best, perhaps even the best carrier in the world, mm. even mm. even today, right? Mm. Uh, by virtue of them uh, of their reputational brand. I but see. An airline like AirAsia, which is a low-cost carrier, and like many other airlines in the world, okay. they, they would need to lease aircraft because yes. aircraft are very expensive uh, assets, right? And so they will have to go to a leasing company. Okay. And that's why I say, look, this is my plan. Uh, within the next few years, I have, uh, I'm going to fly to all these destinations, these this routes that I'm looking at. Mm. And this is my expansion plan. Mm. This is what I'm going to do. And, you know, and I think, you know, I need this particular aircraft type, right? And so I've been successful enough to be able to speak to Airbus, for example, because mm. AirAsia only uses Airbus. Aircraft. That's right. So they That's have right. a special relationship and Airbus provides them with a very... Uh, lucrative deal mm-hmm. in terms of uh, pricing mm-hmm. because they buy in bulk. Yep. Right? They buy when, whenever, I mean, it helps in this industry when you're, if you go to Boeing and you say, I want to buy 200, they're your best friend, right? And, yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, also, they say, okay, look, you know, we'll give you special uh, incentives, special discounts. So for the first 10 or 20, you get it at a price that very, 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 I see. Very, very, uh, very good price. Usually, how much is it off the list price? You know, because when you when you Google right, uh, AA three twenty is roughly about hundred million US, right? So, I, I know some of this may be confidential data, but uh, roughly, do they get like twenty percent or thirty percent? Wow, half half. It, again, it depends on how much uh, order that you put into place. What is the most steepest discount you've ever seen? Uh there's a company. There's an airline, uh, Delta. In ah, the US, right? Okay. Um, so Delta a couple of years ago decided to buy the A220. Okay. Which, which is which Bombardier. was well, which Bombardier, but then it was assumed by, by Airbus, right? Yeah. And at that time, uh, they were this particular aircraft was competing with the Embraer. Yes. Right. Yeah. And so Delta said, okay, we'll we'll go for this particular aircraft and. And then, the, you know, the, the market was there. The, the list price was something like about 35, close to 40. Something like. 40 so, they, mm. so they probably got about, it, there was talk, you know, and then nobody can verify this. Yeah. So there was talk that they had it for just over 20. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, and because they bought, I can't remember the contract how many, but they bought quite a bit. Quite a substantial amount. Yeah. And okay. then th- this was, uh, to be fair, this is an excellent aircraft. It still is. Yeah. And now, especially now that it's under Airbus, and, and it is uh, able to do a lot of things uh, economically. I see. Uh, in the marketplace, and yeah, I think we we probably will see more of it post COVID because now not many people are interested in uh, white body. Yeah. Aircraft. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So. Um, 
of of I know you may not have the numbers exactly, but of all the planes in the world, how many percent do you think are actually leased? Fifty percent, sixty percent, more than that. More than that, more than that, yeah, more than seventy percent. Seventy percent. Okay. Yeah. No. yeah. <laughs> if you look at the an airline, airlines in Southeast Asia, for example, since we're in Asia, right? Yeah. Let's, let's talk about Southeast Asia. Uh, Garuda. Yeah. Which is having a problem. Now. Yeah. I mean, Garuda is pretty over ninety-five percent of the aircraft are leased. leased. Yeah. What and is the interest is... rate like, uh, for a lease aircraft? <laughs> Uh, the right investor now, question I, coming. <laughs> yeah, now, now I think that the, the numbers have just gone haywire, right? Okay. Because over the past one, one and a half years, no one's paying. Whoosh. Yeah, that's the reality of it because there's no money coming in. So airlines uh, don't have the revenue. Mm-hmm. So they can't afford to pay your monthly rentals. But typically, uh, if return on investment, if, if you're... Uh, an investor in a leasing company. So okay. leasing companies provide far better returns than an airline. Mm. So yeah, I mean, people rush to buy airline stocks, but the best stocks are actually uh, leasing company stocks. Mm. So they would, in, in the good years, they would 13, 14%. Wow. Yeah. But wow. now, no, now they're in pretty bad. Everything is on asunder now. Yeah. Speaking of, of yeah. Speaking of leasing companies, what do you think of uh, Aircap? Because I know Aircap is yeah, one of the biggest. So maybe you can just shed some light about the leasing it's, industry. Aircap is one of the one of the largest. I mean, they use, you know, it's 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 uh, it's got exposure around the world with mm. all the major airlines. Uh, recently, I think you would have read of the, um, the the merger with with GE, mm. right? Um. And that's also uh, going to be interesting because uh, people now are struggling to understand and to to visualize what kind of marketplace we will be in post COVID. Yeah. So that that is no. I mean, if somebody can tell you exactly <laughs> uh, what it's going to look like, you know, crystal ball. We, I don't we, think anyone has a crystal ball, no, right? No. No. <laughs> yeah. So, so what uh, companies and you know, airlines and leasing companies are doing right now is pretty much trying to consolidate and trying to prepare themselves for what emerges after COVID, mm. right? Because things will be very different. Uh, airlines will have less money. The appetite for travel perhaps will be curbed as well for for uh, for the time being. Until you get rid of COVID, I think there will be a lot of uh, uncertainty. Mm. Right, so Singapore is probably one of good example. They said they will live with this. They they're calling it an endemic now, mm. right? Mm. So you got to live with it, and they're yeah. slowly opening up. So I think that's that's what what is going to happen for the rest of the the region as well. I mean, it's not going to go away anytime soon, right? So yeah. so you just have to learn to live with it. And unfortunately, some airlines will will fall mm. because they can't continue bleeding. Yeah, at this rate, right? So, uh, the smaller ones, I, I think in Malaysia, I, I I'm not sure if we will still have three airlines <laughs> in the future. Yeah, uh, you got Malaysia Airlines, Berhad, MAS, right? Yes. and the flag carrier you have Air Asia, and then you've got Malindo. Yeah, yeah, uh, which is uh, owned by the Indonesians by Lion Air. Right? Yeah, uh, there's a lot of overcapacity in Malaysia. Okay. Um, 
Air Asia is, uh, I like Air Asia uh, mm -hmm. personally, and mm -hmm. I've flown on them many, many times. One, because I think it's a fantastic airline. I mean, whether you love or loathe Tony Fernandez, <laughs> I, think, I think he's done incredible things oh, for, yes. for Malaysia. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, let's uh, call a spade a spade. So he's been fabulous in terms of raising Malaysia's um, uh, reputation as a place for, for travel. Yeah. You know, in fact, I mean, if you look at the data from Malaysia airports, right, you see Asia, in fact, is the main airline that the was king. The yeah. bringing all the tourists into Malaysia. Exactly. Not, not the flag carrier. Correct, correct. Yeah. But now they're in, in trouble. And I, I, I mean, the share price is still under one ringgit yeah. for Asia. And for Asia X, it's even worse. Yes. Uh, I'm not sure if it can be like that for much longer. I don't know what the end game that management is looking at for Asia X. Mm. Uh, it's very difficult to see. I, I just don't see uh, much room for maneuver for that company. The the economics, you know, I, I recall your interview with Bloomberg, uh, I think uh, it's about seven months ago and you mentioned the call or you made a call in which there is not much economics left for a long haul low-cost carrier. Yeah. Maybe to, to help the audience understand this a little bit more, can you explain why is that so? In, in a sense, so long-haul, for the context of uh, the audience, long-haul, low-cost is someone like AX where they fly, I would say, more than six hours on a route, one, one route. Is that correct? Is my definition? That's correct, yeah. Yeah. And uh, usually, the turnaround time would be about two hours for a flight for something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What? What would be the economics of that in the future? There's no economics for that, um, unless you're prepared to lose money. Um, <laughs> Tax revenues, I guess. Uh, the, the... No, I think mean, what, what AirAsia, for AirAsia X, uh, so your viewers understand, the reason that he had that was that it was part of this uh, plan to have a feeder system. You have the, the main AirAsia flying into KLIA 2, and then you have AirAsia X taking them to Japan, to China, to Australia, and mm. all that, right? So they, mm. it acts as a feeder service, and, uh, you know, it, it, it helps the company to grow and, yeah. and also to, to generate some money yeah. in, in, in between, right? But that is not an easy task to do because, by definition, low, low cost long haul um, requires a lot of capital, right? Mm. When, when you're flying, I mean, the best, the money that is being made today by most airlines, uh, especially low-cost airlines, are being made within three to four hours. Mm. So, so short-haul flights, mm. right? So quick turnaround, the cost is uh, cheaper and you don't need your crew to be sleeping in hotels overnight or for two nights or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And then, uh, yeah, so that's where you, you're making the bulk of your profit, like Ryanair, like Southwest, yeah. like That's EasyJet, right? right? Uh, even Lion Air in Indonesia, right? Yeah. That, that did well for that. And AirAsia too. But when you start to go beyond five, six hours, then there are regulations to say that you need uh, to have an extra set of crew, for example, mm. set of uh, pilots. Night stops. Night stops. And then uh, you, you incur costs because your fuel is also there, right? The cost of fuel. 
Correct. And then when you fly, let's say to Europe, uh, you need to have your crew rest for several days mm-hmm. before they can fly back. And then all this, you know, it it doesn't. It's it, airline industry by definition is a very very highly capitalized industry, right? Mm. Uh, and and the margins are very thin. Mm. <laughs> so when you, and when 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 you go, you have to pack your aircraft with as many passengers you can, especially if you're a low cost uh, long mm. haul, right? Mm. And then uh, then you know you are exposed to the vagaries of regulators in Europe, regulators mm. in other places, by the weather and so many other factors. So there are many variables in the airline business that can ruin your plan, or ruin your company, ruin your life. Yeah. Mm. Um, mm. Um, there have been a lot more. Uh, yeah, that's why Richard Branson, I think, so who, who said that you know, in order to be a millionaire, you start by being a billionaire. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that that has never been truer in this in this business. Um, but then again, I think there's no shortage of rich people who are bitten by the uh, travel bug, by the mm. aviation industry, and they want to try. I see. Right. Yeah. So it. <laughs> well, just curious, uh, you know, before your near, before years, uh, looking at airlines, knowing the kind of capital intensity plus the amount of stakeholders that are right. I mean, you need to consider things like landing rights, i.e., governments. Mm. You, you've got a bunch of staff, and you know, in in this part of the world, unions are not so big, but you know, in places like Europe, Europe and the US, unions are a lot bigger. Yeah. Like walk me through. Why is it that rich people still want to put <laughs> to try things out? You know, in your own, what's your theory? I guess. Well, it's just one word: ego. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I've I've met again, personally <laughs> quite a few interesting rich people in my uh, career, right? And and you know, in India, for example, you had uh, Kingfisher, like Kingfisher, right? Vijay yeah. Malia. Quite a character himself. <laughs> that was a that was a big one. That was a big yeah mess up. Yeah, and uh, now he's in London, and the airline is gone. Right? Yeah, uh, and then you have another one now. Oh, previously, um, Jet Airways in India, right? Mm, yes. Um, and 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 uh, whose owner was also a very charismatic uh, billionaire, mm. and and then it's it it went, you know, uh, yeah. It shut down, and now they're trying to revive it under different ownership mm. by by this uh, another very rich Indian based in Dubai. Mm. Uh, so let's see how it goes. But there's no shortage of uh, people with a lot of money who wants to to dabble in the n- industry. But that, that there are pockets where you can go into. I see. Right? Like in Southeast Asia, for example, there there's overcapacity, but there's also areas if you're smart enough you can and this is where we uh, advise uh, people about uh, you know we do the, and the analytics mm, the right? root analytics, analytics yeah the, the root analysis and all the strategic views of of how you can possibly uh, penetrate certain sectors for example right mm. uh, within uh, but again you know it's a lot of these are government government because uh, uh Air, um, airlines, you know, you need governments to open up the, 
the so, roots. Well, yeah. Um, yeah. So that's that's also difficult for uh, for private carriers sometimes because the uh, the advantage is always on the flag carriers because they I are see. they are government. So would it be fair for me to say that um, you think that in terms of economics wise, long haul? should in a way be a game more for full-fledged carriers that in mm. a way can charge premium prices yeah can charge okay so there is in a way there's still space for guys like cathay sia oh, uh absolutely yeah 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 i think okay. i think uh you know people like sia and cathay are not going to go away mm. uh after the the pandemic in fact i think they have uh a lot of uh positives going for them. If you look at what SI is doing, they're, they're in trouble, obviously, in terms of the cash burn, which is, is over 100 million you are seeing every month, I think. You know? uh, similarly for Cathay also. But these are airlines that have been really well established. And what's important in my opinion also, these are airlines with very, very good management people. And that's in my view, the, the, the key thing for any airline, people, the people who are running it, it's, it doesn't matter, you know, you have a lot of money, if you, but if you don't have the right people with the right uh, aptitude to run and manage the airline and understand the business and who are quick-witted and ready to jump up at 3 a.m. in the morning, for example, because this is a very unpredictable industry, right? Uh, then, then, then you have problems. You will have problems. So it's not uh, an industry for the faint-hearted. Yeah. Um, so Tony is wonderful, is wonderful because he continues to be a disruptor, and I think we should take pride in the fact that he's Malaysian. Mm-hmm. So we have, we have produced a world-class uh, aviation entrepreneur, right? In in that sense, uh, just like Branson, just like all the other uh, Western uh, aviation business people. Um, but not everybody will have that kind of grit and energy and stamina and humor. I mean, you need a lot of humor in, in the aviation business. To get right? by, right? To get, yeah, by. to get by. And to appeal to, to your customers as well, especially there are more young people who are flying these days, right? And the young people are not interested in who you are. They don't care. As long as the price is cheap, they'll fly, right? Uh, so it doesn't matter to them. And, and he appeals, uh, Tony does appeal to the younger people and he has a great sense of communication skills, um, which helped AirAsia. But having said that, you know, I, do, I, do, I am concerned about AirAsia and where it could go because, uh, you know, unless they are able to raise huge amounts of money to really... Uh, overcome all the problems that they had, they have had for the last one and a half years. Then it's it's going to be very challenging for them uh, under the new um, environment post COVID. So right. again, you know, you guys talked about the uh, rights issue that is coming up with earlier on, and that is something I think uh, that that is welcome news. But it also shows that the degree, the extent of the situation that he's facing, that the airline is facing right now. It's very, very difficult. They don't have, you know, they can't expect Kazana to pump in 3.6 billion like what Kazana did for Malaysia Airlines, right? Um, but 
they have to use their wits and their uh, you know skills in maneuvering that airline back to to uh, profitability. So that will probably be the biggest challenge for uh, people like you, MJ, who who have shares in, in yeah, Air yeah. Asia, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then you you know you you are thinking well you know when can it you know at what stage do you say okay I've had enough of this and then I want to to exit or whatever right but I mean this is my point is the the airline industry is one of the most brilliant industries in the world right but it doesn't equate to uh, profitability all the time for for right. the longest time the airline industry has been losing money in fact mm-hmm. right. And so uh, when I was at Standard at first, I, I, again, I covered airlines and airline equities and all that stuff. And, and you know, my, when people ask me, I always said, you know, if you, if you can, just avoid putting money in airlines, right? <laughs> and, and even the greatest investor of all time, Warren Buffett, you know, yeah. he's, had, he's had enough of airlines. airlines and he, yes. Yeah, and he's never going to get it. You know, and if, if you had to put money, then I say put money in leasing companies, right? Listed leasing companies, because, you know, they, they are the ones that, but now everything has changed. Yeah. yeah. You yeah, guys yeah. know that, you know, ev- nothing is the same as what it was before. Right? Yes. So this virus has completely altered, transformed the entire landscape. Yeah. I remember you were mentioning about this German leasing company and the, uh, the debacle about the A380 and then, mm. yeah, <laughs> shed, shed a bit of light, you know, for those of us, for those who didn't read about the, this particular debacle where there was a big group of investors in, in, uh, yeah. in Germany and they financed the A380 and I, I don't know who these aircrafts were leased to. Maybe you can shed some light and, and why the economics didn't work well, out actually. Yeah, it all started when, in 1997 when the A380 was sorry, 2007. Sorry, two, is it 2007? Yeah, it was, yeah. When the A380 was launched, right? And SIA was a launch customer for the A380. Yeah. So they bought uh, 19 A380s. So they were the launch customer. Again, they had very, very good um, prices when they bought them. Mm-hmm. But people may not know that the first five or six aircraft that as I took, the A380s, they didn't buy them. They, mm. they, leased, they leased them uh, because the SIA has a fantastic treasury team and risk management team. Mm. And they decided, okay, well, yeah, we'll, we'll be the launch customer because we're going to get uh, a good aircraft. It is a good aircraft, right? I've, I've flown on it many times. And, and then SIA said, okay, but, you know, just to mitigate our risk that so we'll have the first six uh, leased to us and so that we can see how the economics go and then you know we'll take it from there right mm. and so they, they leased it from German investors basically uh, there, there's a word there's a German word for it uh, which I'm not going to try to, to <laughs> pronounce uh, it yeah uh, but it, essentially what it was was like uh, German investors bought the aircraft and then leased it to Singapore Airlines, to SIA. But at the same time, what the German investors did also, they, they sold part of that portfolio to retail investors, right? Or, or even, uh, okay. I, I think there was a time at one point, I think 
Arnold Schwarzenegger and maybe Tom Cruise or a few of the Hollywood celebrities were part owners of this aircraft. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. So you can put, I don't know, you know, a few million or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and then because you are getting rental from SIA. What yeah. could go wrong, right? Yes, you know, yes. That's the, the best airline in the world. So you're guaranteed of uh, returns every month, right? For, for a, you know, maybe a number of years or something like that, right? Uh, so that's what happened. And, and the, and, but the A380 is, is a, a peculiar aircraft because uh, some people say it's ahead of its time. Some people said it was, you know, they could have come earlier and all that. But I've always been of the view that, you know, the, there was not a real need for that sort of aircraft because it's a huge, uh, you know, double-decker aircraft, massive, massive plane, right? So, they, you know, the, it was very expensive to, to run. And when you have an aircraft with four engines, you know, I mean, it's going to cost you a lot more. So, for example, when you're flying from Singapore, Changi or KLIA uh, to London. Just an example, right? Because this was told to me by pilots who fly it. And I have a, an ex-college uh, mate who, who, who was an A380 pilot, right? And each time when you fly an A380 from either Singapore or Malaysia, you're talking about uh, loading up jet fuel worth about over 200,000 US. Wow. <laughs> Just for that sector, <laughs> just for that sector from from uh, Singapore or KL to London. London, yeah. Right. So imagine over two hundred, depending on how much uh, jet fuel costs, right? Yeah. At that particular point in time. So, in order to just justify or to break even on that particular f- sector for that flight, for uh-huh. example, KL to London Heathrow, you have to first make sure that you know, you can cover the fuel costs. Correct. Right? And then you can talk about making money. So that's the reason very hardly anyone, any airline has made money from this aircraft. But it's surprising though. I mean, prior to the creation of the A380, the 747 seen so much success. Mm. And you know, it was, uh, what, uh, a pass- uh, could carry about 400 something passengers. Mm. Mm. Huge success. Even 500, yeah. Yeah, 500 if, on a stretch version, right? Yeah. And yet the A380 failed, fell way, wayside. Was it because of, I think, changing trends? Uh, I think you mentioned this before, uh, from a hub and spoke model towards a more direct route. And that's point why... Point point, yeah. Yeah, point to point. And the other thing was that, uh, is it because as well of four engines because we see Airbus retiring the A340 you know that didn't work you know mm. the A330 so much better the A350 is going to sell even better and you mentioned many times it's going to be a cash cow so if we pivot towards that right my question would be this will white body be cons- white body models be consolidated into just a few that are money making for the airlines and then the rest will just go wayside you know like this A340s, the 767s. What what are your thoughts on that, actually? There's certainly an argument veering on that, right? And I can see, John, that you you do have a personal interest in (laughs) Not many people would understand the the, the economics of that, but you you are right in the sense that uh, post-COVID, for example, people are already starting to talk about uh, decreasing the number of white-body aircraft, meaning... 
787 Dreamliners, A350, 330s and all that, right? In favor of the A320s, for example, or the 737 Maxes and all that. Um, is there any truth to that? I, I think so, because I think uh, international long haul travel will be the, the last one to, uh, to fly, right? For, yeah. So that, that in, when you're saying that, I think there, you know, we understand people like SIA and Cathay who are very much dependent on intercontinental and even for SIA ultra long haul flights. Correct, correct. Like the Singapore, so, New Jersey. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. And they, so they will struggle, right? They will suffer because they are dependent on all these long haul flights. Uh, so the first one that will continue and will be uh, more aggressive will be the domestic flights, right? So mm. you have uh, flights within China and this is where having a big country is very important, like mm. Indonesia, right? They have mm. many islands in, in their country. It's an archipelago, uh, unlike Singapore, which is a little red dot. <laughs> so they, they, they don't have... A, uh, a market of their own, right? Uh, a domestic market. But, you know, that said, I think Singapore has always treated the whole ASEAN or in fact the whole Asia Pacific as its own backyard. It's mm. its own uh, domestic playing phase. And because they have the, the fleet, they have very new aircraft, they have some of the best uh, uh, new aircraft that's in, in their fleet. Yeah? And so that, uh, you know, we'll see, we'll have to see how that play out. So it, it's very difficult now, especially when borders are still being shut yeah. and the requirements for, for, for travel passes, vaccination and so on. But uh, yes, the, the, the future will probably be for aircraft like the Airbus A321 XLR. Yeah, because I mean, if you can fly, if they can pack you like sardines and fly mm. you Kuala Lumpur, London on the A321, I'm pretty sure they'll oh, do that. that. <laughs> I'm very sure the airlines will do but that. They, they will, I mean, somebody like uh, Michael O'Leary and Matt Reiner have all these uh, really um, interesting ideas. You know, I mean, he he's the person who, who, you know, at one point, I mean, whether it was said in humor, I don't know. He, you know, he would charge a dollar or five dollars for someone to use the loo, right? <laughs> Or for standing in yeah. an aircraft, you know. So, but uh, those those are the kind of uh, things. But uh, you know, I I don't think you we are at the stage where we can have a a, a, a narrow body aircraft oh. that they can fly that kind of distance. Uh, that, that kind of distance right now. But with the XLR, the A three two one, I think this has this is truly i mean it's a cliche but it's it's a game changer yeah it is right? it is and, and 7000 eh, 4000 nautical miles yeah, right? 7000 yeah. so is crazy literally from kl to perth easy yeah right? easy. And, and and from kl to to, to tokyo yeah example, right and and on the middle east yes so again for for if you're an airline owner or, and you're looking at the future and you're saying i mean this is the cost I'm Okay. Plus, you need to work out and do the calculations. How, how many people you think are likely to want to fly post-COVID, yeah. right? To a certain yes. destination. But that, that aircraft would be more suitable, I think, especially given the problems that the 737 MAX is Max. facing right now. Yeah. So, so the, the, the uh, Airbus certainly has the edge now. Um, and, and I'm happy for them because they've, they've worked very hard. They've been very, very... Canny about how they uh, 
maneuver the marketplace and how they build uh, the customer base, for example. Right? Yeah. So if you look at low-cost carriers in Southeast Asia, for example, or even beyond Southeast Asia, most of them are using A320s, right? yes. which, which is the workhorse yes. of, of uh, low-cost carriers. Yeah. Yeah. MJ, do you have any questions, MJ? Yes, actually, I want to ask you a little bit, slight divergence to the, the Boeing Airbus duopoly. Yeah. I think the first question that I want to know is also, why is it that for the longest time that there has been this duopoly and that there doesn't seem to be a, the third or fourth player? And the second one is, um, I've not updated myself, but I think a couple of years back, I was reading up saying that uh, the Chinese uh, want to be that third player. And to my knowledge now, that has not become a reality yet. So maybe explain to uh, myself and those listening, uh, why is it that there's a duopoly? And why is it that it's so difficult for a third one to break through into that duopoly? And uh, are the Chinese close to it? That's my question. The comjects mm. of this world. Mm. Yeah, okay. First of all, um, an aircraft is a very, very complicated um, machine, right? Uh, there are thousands of kilometers of cables in the 777, for example. Right? I, I have one of my favorite uh, times when I go to places like Seattle and Toulouse is, and then I consider that uh, being a fortunate in being this industry, you get it, you know, to visit all these factories and look at how difficult it is to put an aircraft together because there's so many pieces and components to get together. So it requires a lot of research, a lot of money, a lot of uh, intellect that goes into it, right? So Boeing is the oldest one. Mm. It's, it's over 100 years and they're very proud of it as they should be. Um, and they have gone from building, you know, planes that can land on the sea or to, to building supersonic aircraft, to building uh, military aircraft, and so on. So it's a fabulous, fabulous company. And, you know, therefore, for the longest time, until 1970, when Airbus came into the picture, so they had the monopoly, right? and, and they were the biggest supplier of aircraft to all the airlines in the world at that time. And also because they had the know-how, they had the, if you like, the first mover advantage. So anybody with a first mover advantage, you know, will, will gain, right, from that. Uh, things started to change when, actually before Airbus, Embraer was in the picture. Mm. So Embraer is actually older than Airbus by about a year, mm. I think. Right? So Embraer came into the picture in 69. They started by producing crop dusters in Brazil. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they gradually built into smaller aircraft. Um, and then you know, it, it gradually developed. But at the same time, the Europeans, if you go back, and this is where my European studies come into play, and, and you look at, you know, the 60s and 70s where the Europeans were very much trying to get together as a group. Mm. Right? Mm. So the uh, EEC at that time was called right? uh, Economic uh, Grouping, the alliance that they had. So they, they, they wanted something to show for it. So Airbus was born in seventy. A300 was there and then uh, it helped that they were the four biggest uh, shareholders in 
have us, as you know, John is uh, France, Germany, yeah. the UK, and Spain, right? Yes. And, and so this is why uh, they have had the advantage of being backed by very strong economies, right? Yes. Germany, France, UK. So they've, they've used that opportunity and it's good for, for all of us today because otherwise it would just be a monopoly by both. Right? Yeah. So it, it's, it's gradually over the last 40, 50 years become a, a duopoly. And now Airbus is actually ahead of Boeing. Yes. Because of the problems that were uh, raised by the 737. And now recently, I hope not, uh, it's not going to endanger Boeing, uh, but the problem that they are seeing with the 787. Yes. Um, so, but that has pushed back Boeing's uh, uh, dominance. Uh, dominance, yeah, dominance uh, uh, by uh, by a fair bit. And but also, I, I I would like to pay tribute to Airbus management also because they have been very very uh, acutely aware of what they needed to do, and they, I think, in many ways, they they were able to. And they broke a lot of barriers in Southeast Asia, for example. Yes, right? yes. So there, there was an Airbus chief salesman who would fly. John Leahy. John Leahy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who, who I know very well and who I have had the pleasure of having various uh, debates together. And, and uh, he would fly. He wouldn't think twice about flying from, from Paris to Jakarta to meet with the, the owner of Lion Air, for example. Right? Mm. And he... And, and this is a very good example because our line I was previously a Boeing customer. Right? Ah, yes. Very big Boeing customer. Very big, huge Boeing customer. <clears throat> and, and then the Airbus came into the picture and he flew up and down, sometimes just over a day. Wow. Right? Crazy, yeah, I know. But uh, he was that kind of person, very driven. Uh, he's a real legend. Uh, so he would, you know, be very persuasive. And then, you know, he managed to get Lion to buy, I think, over 234 orders of Airbus aircraft, right? And he did the same for uh, Vietjet as well. Yeah, yes. Uh, and similarly with, with other uh, airlines in the world. So you've, and ironically, he's American. Yeah, he's actually the best, MJ, <laughs> the best, uh, I don't yeah. know whether you know, the best aircraft salesman for a European company is yeah, American. An American guy, His name yeah. is John yeah. Leahy. He's, he's, you you cannot sell. write this sort of story. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So he was, he was uh, quite a, uh, he has, you know, his own personality. He was, he was godlike uh, yeah. in, in that company and, and for a good reason as well, yes. because, you know, he was the biggest, he single-handedly uh, beat Boeing. I mean, I, I would go so far to say that. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but and, and now I think when we talk about duopoly, yes, it is a duopoly, but I, I would say the Chinese are not very far behind. Mm. We will come to a time, maybe <clears throat> after this decade, for example, uh, where where the Chinese will uh, will be a force. And they're maybe not as big yet because they are still uh, going through the learning curve, right? Yeah. And and in this business, the learning curve is very steep. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> but the Chinese have the knowledge, they have the know-how, they have the people. To make it happen, right? So I, I would say, I mean, I, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I see Evic and Comac and, and their state-owned companies are very aggressive in pushing this up, but they are, they are still dependent on, on parts that are supplied by Americans and Europeans to put together 
their so-called national aircraft, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, even looking at the 787, <clears throat> I would say uh, while it's a Seattle-made aircraft, mm -hmm. fuselage from Kawasaki, mm -hmm. <laughs> avionics from Honeywell. So virtually, if you look at aircraft manufacturers today, they're more assemblers rather than, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing for anything today. I mean, look at our phone, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. The, all the various parts in the phone came from everywhere, from, from the, the minerals that go into it and all the parts and everything. So that's the world we live in today. Um, I mean, my cameras, again, you know, coming back to my hobby, I mean, with the cameras that I, I have different cameras, right, for different uses. They, they come from different, I mean, it may be a Leica, or it may be a, a Fuji or Nikon or Canon, but that no, the Canon Canon cameras are made in China or in Thailand, right? So what what can you say? This is the world we live in, and so in future you will have, and it's already happening. So the, the streamliners, parts of it are made in Japan or, or some parts from 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 Italy, I think, uh, and and that's how we will go forward. So nothing will be produced uh, primarily by, by the country that is making it. Right? Um, and that's, that's the globalization that, that, uh, that we know today. So, you know, again, I think the Chinese will have perf would have perfected uh, making an aircraft by within the next 15 to 20 years. Uh, they've built an aircraft carrier already. They've sent people, uh, so, you know, they've sent machines to Mars, you know, uh, don't underestimate the Chinese. And I, I like to see that happening because I'm, I'm uh, happy and proud as an Asian to see an, another Asian country mm -hmm. at the forefront of this. You know, So uh, um, the Chinese are in fact carrying Asian hopes, right? So yeah. whereas in the FARS, you know, uh, it's Western dominated, That's the right Europeans right. and Americans. And now you have the Chinese. And this is also partly why we're having all this... Uh, Trade confrontations, yeah, yeah. You know, which which is a sad thing because it doesn't benefit anyone. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah, yeah. MJ had a question actually. <laughs> oh on, no, uh, it, it's it's somewhat linked. So because of uh, the the sheer expense of the number of parts, right, that it cannot be assembled in one country, mm. and so I'm likening what we're discussing here a bit to the semiconductor industry because China wants basically every single part to be manufactured in China. So they want self-reliance, right? That's the word that they use. Do you think it is realistic for China or even possible for China to do every single air parts within the country? They have a, bit, a billion, billion and a half people. Do you think that's possible? And do you think that's, even if it was possible, do you think that it's reasonable? I think it's certainly possible for the Chinese to do anything they set their hearts and mind to do because, you know, this... Look, the Chinese have been civilized well before anyone else. You know, it's a 5,000-year-old civilization. Let's not forget that. Um, and so they, they are very clever and they're very astute. Uh, but for them to come up to a stage where they can do everything on their own, maybe they're not there yet. But I... Uh, I certainly think they are capable of doing that. Uh, let's wait another, as I said, you know, give them another 
10, 20, two decades, and I think they will be there uh, mm -hmm. because they can do everything. I look, they have been producing a lot of stuff. I mean, what is there that China cannot produce today? I name me one product that they can't produce. I mean, they can do anything yeah. uh, within the confines of the mainland, for example. Right? Yes, yeah. they would need all these uh, natural res uh, resources that they would have to go to Africa, they would go to uh, distant lands to procure them, but they have the know-how, they have the capability to put it together. They have some of the smartest people trained in the West yeah. that have just come back to China Right? and who are running all these uh, high-end like, technological companies, right? And, and you know, look, look at Alibaba, look at uh, TikTok, look at all this. I mean, who would have guessed that this was all Chinese, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's something to, to celebrate, I think, and not to, to knock, mm. uh, not to be envious of. I think, you know, they've, they've come very far in a very short period of time, right? Yeah. Since uh, opening up in 79 uh, until today, it's a very short time. And look how much they've achieved. So uh, airline industry for them to achieve something great is well within their capability, even maybe to surpass other uh, ex existing Western carriers, or even, yeah, technologically, speaking plus they have so much money yeah <laughs> they have deep pockets that they can virtually you know finance this through they can make mistakes and then yeah. they will they will just uh you know just go on and, and, and achieve that so I, I think that's that's a good thing and and especially for asians yeah right? uh then you have a place on the table of you know international aviation to say well look here's an Asian representative so that could nay so the, from a duopoly it can you know expand to having China uh, you know like like the UN you know you have China there and the rest are all the Western countries. Western guys yeah. uh, Shuko um, I'm gonna pivot a little bit into the supply chain in a way of uh, aircraft so. As you know, MJ and myself, we mentioned and you've shared uh, very well that it is a very capital-intensive industry. Uh, no one person can develop the entire aircraft out of scratch. I, mean, I think it's the same thing for the semiconductor industry. Uh, we see the divergence today in two niche players. So take us a little bit into, let's just say, someone like Spirit Aerospace who does parts, uh, fuselage. I don't. I don't know whether they do full frame fuselage, but I know they do parts, parts of wings and all that. Versus a guy who is like a Safran or a Rolls Royce, who who actually commands a better margin in your experience, and who commands better financing. Well, in the past, it would be Rolls Royce because uh, you know they, you know, you can't fly an aircraft without engines, right? Yeah, and and <laughs> and many of the uh, wide body aircraft are. Are powered by Rolls engines. Yes, the 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 the, the, the Trend 1000s, the Trend 900s, so the the 380s and the triple sevens, and uh, you know, and so on. Uh, so they and they and this is a very 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 influential company, mm. right? But they have come under a lot of strain in recent times. You've seen that uh, reflected in their share prices, which yeah. has taken a, a huge tumble. Um, 
recently, not just from, from the economics of it, but there were many issues that were associated with uh, bribery and all that stuff, right? Yes, yeah. yes. Which had happened uh, some time ago. Uh, but but I, I still think it's, it's uh, hugely... Um, influential company that 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 has a, a big place in 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 the ecosystem right mm. and and you have if you've been fortunate enough to visit their plant uh, at, at Soleta, they have a, a huge uh, oh in Soleta, singapore okay yeah they have a, a plant in singapore where they put together all these huge turbines and, and engines and you can you can see the amount of uh, know-how and knowledge and and the the it's just the you know the 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 energy that goes, and I, and I'm saying this in you know uh, not just a rhetorical way, but it you know it it is going to continue to be making money because the engines and they continue to to develop new technology as well, right? And mm. one of the key things about aviation right now, the key word is sustainability, mm. right? And and the Rolls Royce is among one few companies that are at the forefront of it because they are developing new engines, new technology where you can allow, where, where in future, um, you know, you have uh, a non-fossil fuel mm. uh, being uh, loaded into an aircraft, right? Like, you know, Airbus is looking at hydrogen planes, for mm. example, right? Mm-mm. And you've used it, they even talk about using uh, electric aircraft in the future. <laughs> Yeah. We, that's, we that's, cannot rule that out, man. No, Definitely no, not, something yeah. on the cards, yeah, on the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I think that's some of the things that all these companies, I think, uh, and that's the beauty about the aviation industry. It never stops um, inventing or innovating. Mm. Right? Mm. So, and that's what I, uh, over the past 25 years being in the industry, you keep learning. And, and yeah. It's amazing. I mean, this industry, I, I'm happy to say, I'm proud to say that some of the most intelligent and, and smartest and, and creative people are in this business, mm. right? in the in the in, in the uh, aviation industry, because every six months you see something new, and they adapt and adapt, and they create new things, and they make uh, they make it safer, yeah, for us to to fly, right? So it's never it is the safest mode of transportation. Great. Um, now I'm gonna pivot a little bit into airlines and. Mm. Uh, we won't hold it against you. Can you name us your favorite airlines? So I don't know whether it will make sense to our audience in terms of investing ranking as well. <laughs> Which airlines do? No, again, I mean, I'm the last one. Ever since, you know, when I worked for Standard & Poor's, um, I worked for them for nearly 15 years, actually. Okay. And when I was working for them and yeah, everyone had to declare, right? You know, <laughs> if, you, if you have any holdings, if you bought any shares, you know. Yeah. I'm one of the few people who, you know, I, I don't like buying and selling shares. I, I was never an investor of that sort. Mm-hmm. You know? And especially when you're covering airlines, you, you're, you're not supposed, you know, it, wouldn't, it would be good if you stay off from having uh, any interest in any particular airlines mm-hmm. right? in, in terms of uh, having shareholdings. Yeah, yeah. But I think uh, in Asia, I, I still think that uh, Obviously, Singapore Airlines is, is uh, without a doubt, uh, the strongest okay. in the business by virtue of having Tomasic. I mean, I don't know if you, you, you uh, read the, the news that yesterday they announced, Tomasic announced that they, they made, I don't know, 
how many billions or whatever. Oh, oh no, I haven't read <laughs> yeah, it. Out their portfolio. So yeah. look, this is uh, yeah, man, that's backed by the only triple A country in in this part of the world, right? yeah, or anywhere for that matter. So that again gives you a lot of lends a lot of comfort mm. to, to any would be investor, right? Mm-hmm. So if it things may not look very good, no, but I think if you can. If you can tahan, you know, <laughs> uh, if you, if your threshold is is high, and then you can just keep it, and yeah, I don't think you can go very wrong. What about what about Asia? I'm pretty sure MJ is dying to ask yeah. you about Asia. Again, I, I think I, I mentioned it in passing earlier. I yeah. think it, uh, I I still I'm concerned about that airline and and their ability to come out of this in one piece. I understand. Right, uh, it is, uh, but it would be sad if that were to happen because I I have a high regard for Tony and, and Dan and, and the people at uh, who are managing AirAsia. I think it's a lot that Malaysians have to be proud of yeah. having AirAsia. Uh, came out from nothing, and now when you watch Premier League games, you see AirAsia. You you can't help but feel a bit proud about it, right? That's yeah. right. That's right. Uh, but. Again, this crisis has really knocked them Everything. off the pedestal, right? As it has with every single airline. Yeah. And unless they are able to really raise a substantial amount of money and just uh, reignite or reset again, you know, again, that it's easier said than done, right? Then I think it'd be tough. But uh, one other airline, a very low-profile airline that I, I've always liked from from the beginning is Cebu Pacific. Oh, interesting. In, in the Philippines, yeah. Are uh, they listed? Let me check. Yes, <laughs> they are. Yeah, they, they, they are listed. Um, it's it's owned by the Philippine conglomerate called JG Summit. Mm-hmm. What and makes them so good, uh, Shuko? It is well, well run, exceptionally nice. well run. Uh, I see. It's uh, it's run by a guy called Lance mm. uh, Go Kongwei who. He's also, uh, you know, uh, part of the JG Summit conglomerate, and it's one of the better-run companies in Asia. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And so, Cebu Pacific won because they have this huge Filipino diaspora. I see. Right? So they fly to the Middle East. They fly everywhere uh, where there are a lot of uh, Filipino workers in many parts of the world, right? And okay. so they they benefit from that. And also, they are again. I come back to management skills. So this is one mm. of the few airlines that really have a very good management. It's, so it's it's run very tight. Would you consider the Middle Eastern guys uh, like Tim Clark of uh, Etihad? Or I mean, how, how would you? <laughs> I don't know whether it will be politically inept for I, you to answer all that. But no, I'm quite happy. I think I've never shied away from answering difficult questions. I yeah. Think. Uh, I think so Cebu can, is one. Uh, Cebu SIA is one. Is one. S- okay. SIA is one. Um, in in well, they're not listed. The Gulf carriers. Right? Yeah, the Gulf carriers are not listed. But in terms of management, uh, the guys running them, you know, uh, do you Qatar. have Qatar? Qatar. Yeah. Who the M- I I don't know who is the CEO. I know Tim Clark. You know, of, well, it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of Emirates. But yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, but the the CEO of uh, Qatar, Qatar is a very. Uh, how shall I describe? It? He's a, he's a, he's a Akbar Al Bakr. Yes, he's a he's a huge uh, influence in the marketplace. He he understands the business very well. Great. He is uh, 
yeah, I, I think he's one of the key players in the industry. I see. Yeah. Uh, so what, what would be? Yeah. What about yeah. the European guys? The uh, Ryan Rare. Yeah, uh, definitely. You know, Ryan and and uh, EasyJet are yeah. still going to be there because low cost is uh, is a huge part of the market there. Mm. Uh, but then you will have uh, all the flag carriers like BA and KLM and. Air France and Lufthansa, they are laggards, mm. right? By virtue, again, as you mentioned earlier in this conversation, there are unions there. Mm, correct. That can uh, disrupt the way businesses are done very, uh, very easily. But that's part of their uh, system in Europe, right? So, uh, for better or for worse, I think that's something that they have to navigate through. But, but uh, most of the low cost carriers in Europe, they are going to do well because. There is enough space for them, to, and the people that traditionally have been very uh, attracted to flying EasyJet and, and Ryanair uh, in the US, they're doing exceptionally well. Yeah, exceptionally yeah. well because the US market have, by definition, been always. Uh, I mean, look, people in the US fly like they take taxis, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So that I mean, I, I think uh, you 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 can nibble into some of the stocks there and okay. again you know i am not advocating for, for no no don't worry we would hold you accountable <laughs> by yourself but again I, 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 would, I would like to remind you of, of uh, what uh, warren buffett has done so he has completely exited he's a legend so I, I would follow him yeah mj any questions before i wrap up well as always with our guests, there are plenty of questions, but yeah. I know that uh, there's a li time limit. You know, we cannot um, hold you for too long. So, John, go ahead. Okay. Um, just one last question. Um, so, three days ago, uh, this company in the US called Setjet, they announced a very interesting scheme, in my opinion. Uh, you pay 499 for a yearly membership, and you get to fly in a private jet. At, uh, they call it private jet at first class uh, prices. So, do you think the economics will work? One, and why is it not catching up in countries like uh, Southeast Asia where there's tons of archipelagos? You know, the, the the only way, in a way, the only way to travel is flying. You know, and yeah, your thoughts. Well, I, 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 in fact, I disagree with you. I think that it will catch up. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, great. <laughs> and which is why I think you've seen uh, WCT. Showing a deep interest in transforming Subang. Yes, yes. Oh, the big hoo ha with MH yeah, yeah. <laughs> MHB. Yes. So, so that part of the idea, if I understand it correctly, from people who are familiar with that bit, is to to, uh, to turn Subang into a city airport, which uh -huh. would allow also for private jets to come. A bit like Seleta. I see. Uh, I see. But but like KL is fantastic because it's already one of the. The bigger uh, uh, consumers of private jet flying. I mean, if you go to any state, I mean, Johor, we have uh, several tycoons with their own private aircraft. Yep. In, in Subang, you will see aircraft by the Bajaya Group and a few other uh, all those, uh, corporations that have that, right? Yeah. Have, yeah. And, and that's great uh, because uh, Malaysia, by, if you look at Malaysia east and west, you need to fly. Right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, and I think that will grow. So I mm. think a, a concept like what Setjet has, has, has come up Setjet. With. Setjet. Setjet, yeah. It will pick up, especially in China. 
mm. right? where there's a huge uh, number of very affluent people. Right? Mm. But let's not go that far. I mean, within Malaysia itself, I think there is a market for that. Great. And that's Great. why I think uh, uh, that, that there is a lot of interest in the development of, of Subar and, and what it will be for, for the next. For, for uh, the next, yeah. 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 Um, okay. Uh, to wrap it up, where can people find you? And I even forgot the most important question: Endow Analytics. Why Endow? <laughs> ah, okay. Endow uh, obviously is a name I I took from Endow Rompin. Mm, Endow Rompin, yeah. Which, which is the national park uh, in Johor and partly in Pahang State. Mm-hmm. Uh, Endow is a place where, as as a as a kid, I. My family would go for picnics. I see. And not not really in Dao inside, but near Marseng and Kota Tinggi, that area, right? I that, see. That part, yeah. And and uh, and Dao is a, is actually a palm. Mm. It's, it's I didn't one know of, that. Okay. It's, it's it's a palm tree, palm leaf. I see. And if uh, you and it's unique only to that part of the world. Actually. I see. I mm. see. Okay. And and being a Johorian, so I'm. Uh, you know, proudly <laughs> patriotic about that. So that's how it came about. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Great, great. Uh, so where can people find you? Yeah, I mean, they can uh, look me up at my website, uh, endowanalytics.com okay. uh, or my blog, endowanalytics.wordpress.com okay. uh, or if they're passing by in Johor Bahru, they can <laughs> Google, me, Google me up and we can have Tate Tarek somewhere. You know? Yeah. Uh, that'd be cool. I, again, I extend this to, to you guys, you know. Oh, definitely. One, one as long two. as the borders open yeah. and everyone's vaccinated. Let's hope for the best. I think we need to give a lot of support to our frontliners. Yeah. The people who are doing the most difficult job at this time you know, in, in the crisis, that they deserve all our support. Correct. And, Correct. and, our, and all our prayers. And, uh, so. Let's hope it ends soon, but uh, stay safe, you guys, and yeah. keep it up. I'm, I'm glad to be a part of this. Yeah. I look forward to speaking to you on perhaps another time. Yeah, I, I definitely. Look forward, definitely. Uh, MJ, any last words? No, it's been very pleasurable. Uh, the only sad part is that it couldn't be longer. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. He, yeah. Uh, the the Japanese one, Mr. Shuko. So, <laughs> so I have to cut it short. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're right. My wife is Japanese, so yeah, yeah. Oh, she's Japanese. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah. Uh, thank thank you so much for being on. I, I think MJ and I really enjoyed myself. I sorry, I I had to so many questions to ask that I didn't even allow MJ oh, to no, ask. No, as we, many. We, we yeah. something. So I'm quite happy. Uh, you know, we maybe can try something out differently next time. That's right. That's right. Yeah. We're going to thank specifics you, the next round. Those yeah, specific more stocks. specifics. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I would like that, MJ. Yeah. 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 All right. Okay. Thank you. Uh, and uh, we'll see you guys in the next episode of our podcast. Goodbye. Bye bye. Thanks.